0: We're going to talk a little bit today about um, our country, but in particular, um, we're going to talk about us, those of us who call ourselves believers in Jesus Christ, those of us who claim to be followers of him, and ask ourselves the question of what would it look like for us to truly follow Jesus? Because reality is that God's. Ultimate plan, as much, and we're going to talk a bit about uh, our country. But God's ultimate plan is not to save America. God's ultimate plan is to save souls and to establish the kingdom of God, which will not be named America for all eternity. Now, we we spent a week. I spent a week in Los Angeles. I actually came back early um, last Wednesday because of just the craziness of the schedule here at the church for the summer, and I'll explain a little bit about my schedule in the next week and ask you uh, to pray specifically for something at the end of the service today. But so I came back on Wednesday and uh, Susan and Eli were still there. So I came back on Wednesday and I had my three youngest kids with me, just me and the kids and spending some time with them and getting prepared for what's coming for me next week. And um, while we were doing that, we we worked during the day, we got stuff done during the day. And then at night uh, I was trying to find something for us to watch together. And I, I don't know whether you realize this or not, But that's not easy. I mean, it's not easy to find something to watch. We don't have television, so we have to stream everything. And to find something that my 10-year-old almost son, my 6-year-old daughter, and my almost 4-year-old other daughter all want to watch is not easy. Can I get an amen in the house? And here's the really tricky part, that I will not poke my eyeballs out watching at the same time. Okay? All you parents know that pain. And so I stumbled upon, I didn't even know what was going on, I stumbled upon the U.S. Olympic trials, right, for swimming, all right? Now, on Friday, they started the track and field, and, you know, the Olympics are coming this summer, and, man, I want to tell you, I've been excited about this. uh, I just love the Olympics. I love the competition. I watch it. Uh, It is not good that they are now streaming every event all day long, Everywhere you can look, because I I am one of those guys that I don't know, have a clue what water polo should look like. But when the Olympics are on, I think I'm an expert. Like, I can't believe he just threw that pass there. You're right. I'm water polo, rhythmic gymnastics. Like, what is she doing with that ribbon? I don't know, but it looks good. Right. Like, I just love the Olympics. I love the competition. And here's what happened. Because I was streaming it on our TV. When it came time for commercials, it was live. When it came time for commercials, they didn't have regular commercials, which is a plus, right? What they did is they showed classic moments from the last two Olympics where people won the gold medal. And it was swimmers like Michael Phelps touching right before somebody else. It was the gymnasts who did a vault for the Team USA to win the Women's Gymnastic Championship. And I thought about that moment, which is the moment that they showed them. And as they're showing this, I mean, I'm sitting there and the kids are like, that's kind of cool. I got chill bumps all over me and, you know, like emotional. Like I remember that moment. And I, I remember, some of you remember this. Some of you weren't even close to being thought of yet. But I remember being in a hotel room in St. Louis, Missouri, when Mary Lou Retton won the gold medal. Do y'all remember that, those of you? How many of you remember Mary Lou Retton, all right? How many of you were born after 1984? Don't raise your hands. I don't want to know. And, and the, here's the thing. When those American athletes win the gold medal and they stand on top of that platform and they put that medal around their neck and the national anthem starts to play, whoo, man, it, it gets me, Right it just reminded me of how much I love being a part of this country, how grateful I am that God allowed me to be born here in Los Angeles. You know, um, we were there for I was there for for seven days and you notice a couple of things in Los Angeles. One of the things you realize is that people are people. And you look around and it looks like here. I mean, we uh, we were at the uh, hotel on Sunday after last Sunday afternoon, we've been to church. And we had to get some supplies for Vacation Bible School. And, uh, and uh, Landry and Janetta and Susan and Laura, and um, we, we were all kind of getting together. Dana, we were like, all right, we're going to go. Savannah Richardson, who's teaching. We're like, we got to get our supplies. And so we all get in the van, and we start to go. Okay? And we decided to go to Walmart. You ever been to Walmart? You know they got Walmarts in Los Angeles? Well, we did, it's not on the Google Maps, but we found it. We saw it. We pull in, and Walmart is there, and it says, now open. All right? So we think, oh, that's kind of cool. We walk in. Now, I'm going to tell you the first miracle we experienced in Los Angeles. Every register was open. <laughs> and all of God's people said, amen, right? That don't, that don't, somebody, I think Landry goes, this is the last time they'll ever see this out here. But so, I mean, but you talk about people everywhere. And I was like, How long has this thing been open? So I, I get out my my phone and I Google the thing opened the Wednesday before, and there were 250 people waiting to go in the door when they opened it, and the Los Angeles Times covered Walmart opening, right? This is what they loved it. And people are like, we can't find stuff like this anywhere. And I'm like, if you get them a little sweet tea, they're going to be Southerners before long, right? (laughs) I mean, people are just people. But you also see in Los Angeles, as much as I love this country, and as much as people are people, you see that something's not right. I mean, we know that, Right. It doesn't take uh, somebody with an acute sense of right and wrong and the way things are going for us to see that America, that our country seems to be on a track that is not where we should be. And when you're in Los Angeles, what you see is more evidence of that than you really want to see. And it's not that people are bad. Like, it's not that people are out there and they're doing stuff or saying stuff. They're polite and nice It's just the darkness is so evident. People who don't even have a clue about Jesus or have outright dismissed the idea that it could be something for them. I was reading this week, actually after I got back, a study by a guy named Andrew Walsh. And it's an interesting study because he did a study of world religions and he discovered that almost every major religion is still centered where it was founded. And so, for instance, Islam was founded there in Arabia and is still centered in Mecca. Buddhism was founded in the Far East. And if you want to know where the center of Buddhism is today, it's the Far East. Hinduism was founded in India. And if you want to know where the center of Hinduism is today, is India. Do you know the one major world religion that that doesn't follow for? It's Christianity. Christianity. When you look at Christianity, the original place that it started was Jerusalem. And after Jerusalem, some people got interested in it over in northern Africa and it moved to Alexandria. And then from Alexandria, it moved a little bit north into Rome. And from Rome, it moved into the western part of of England and into Germany and into France. And then eventually it came across the ocean through colonization and through the American Revolution and all of that happened in the settling of our country to where the center of Christianity could be found right here in North America, specifically in our country and in some ways right in the south where we're the buckle of the Bible belt. By the way, it's not the center of Christianity anymore. I don't know if you realize that or not, but America is no longer the center of Christianity. The center of Christianity is now South America and Africa. And by the, in about 20 years, it's going to be obviously so. And the question that Andrew Walls asked is, why does that happen? Why why is Christianity different than all the other religions? Why does it go from place to place and center to center instead of being just where it was in Jerusalem? And this is the quote he said at the end. He said, one must conclude, I think, that there is a certain vulnerability, a fragility at the heart of Christianity. And you might say that this is the vulnerability of the cross. Now, he he goes on to explain more, and I'll kind of explain this quote. What he says is that Christianity works best when it's not in control, when it is vulnerable, when it is not the esteemed state, when it is not the powerful, when it is not the rich. And if you look throughout the history of the Bible, the people who made the biggest impacts in history, for the most part, were not the rich and the powerful, but the lowly. In fact, when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he says to them, some of you used to be like everybody else, but God has raised you up. And his hypothesis is this, that when Christianity becomes the religion of the wealthy and the religion of the powerful, it loses its way. And as it loses its way, it loses its power and people no longer see it as the answer to life's issues. I could just leave that kind of hanging there for a moment. But one of the things that I see in the last 40 years is that Christianity, you know, when we, when this country was founded, we don't want to get into American civics or history lesson, but when this country was founded, Christianity was a major force in its founding, but it wasn't the major force in the governing and ruling now i don't mean that the principles weren't there i just mean that people weren't running on christian as christian platforms and in the last hundred years as christians have sought more power and as we become more wealthy and as we've had more stuff i just wonder if we've lost the essence of what it means to follow jesus if you've got your bibles turn to mark chapter 10 i didn't say it was going to be easy today and it's not chapter 10. In my travels this summer, I feel like I've been all over the country because I have been all over the country. In St. Louis, I was at the Southern Baptist Convention a couple of weeks ago, and uh, Ronnie Floyd, who's president of the convention at that time, said to us that before we call the nation to repentance, we first must call the church to repentance. And before we yell about the sin of our neighbors, we must first examine the sin of our hearts. And so today, I want us to read this passage. And I do, man, man, I, I desire more than anything for America to be a nation that follows the Lord. But that will not happen until we make sure that we are people who are following the Lord. And there's no guarantee, even if we are people who are following the Lord, that it automatically turns our country because God allows those people to make a decision. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. If you forgot, you don't have a Bible with you or you've got your phone, you'd rather use it, you go to fbcgillisvillecom slash rich young ruler By the way, a couple of weeks ago I put that up there, and when we hit publish on the thing, it didn't go up, and so some of you went to a blank page. It should be there today, all right? And so you can go there, all things and the points of the sermon are there for this morning. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17, says this, And he was setting out on his journey. Now, he is Jesus. Jesus is on a journey here. The book of Mark is very action-oriented. It just goes from one event to another, one event to another. Not a lot of long teaching. It's just Jesus acting. And he was on his way on a journey, and a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we know from other passages, we know from the other telling of this story that this was a rich young ruler is the kind of the way he's described. And in their day and time, that probably would have meant that he was somewhere around 30 that he was very wealthy, and that he had some sort of ruling class, not necessarily like kingdom-wide, but that he had authority over a group of people. And so this man runs up to Jesus, and he asks what seems like a very honorable question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit?" And Jesus said, well, why do you call me good? No, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. We're going to leave it there for just a second because Jesus says a couple of things here that we need to focus on. First of all, the man seems like he asked the right question, but he had a word in there that was a problematic for Jesus. We'll explain this a little bit more in Jesus' full answer in a moment. But he said to Jesus, what must I do? And Jesus' first response to him is, first of all, you call me good. We all know nobody's good. Jesus is not denying the uh, fact that he was sinless. What he's saying here is, if you're asking me based on human terms, whether you're able to do enough to become right with God, we know that nobody is able to do enough to come right with God. And then he gave the answer that everyone would have expected, because if you went up to a Jewish rabbi, if you went up to the Jewish Sanhedrin, if you went up to a Pharisee and said, what do I need to do to get eternal life? They would say that simple, follow the commandments and do not sin. And so Jesus starts with this interpretation of the commandments. Now, we know from his teaching that these commandments meant more to Jesus, and Jesus interpreted them differently than anybody else. In fact, in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, is where he goes through and says, "It is you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, don't even look at a woman with lustful eyes. Like he changes. And so these are deeper meanings. But he says to the God, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the God, this is amazing, looks him straight in the eyes and says, that's cool, I got all that. Now, you know what I'd have been tempted to do if I was Jesus at this moment? Liar. Amen. You know the question, I, I, I deal with lots of kids, I deal with teenagers, I deal with adults, and, I, and they come before me, they want to talk about salvation, they want to talk about God. I've never in my 15 years of pastoring had anybody tell me I've never done anything wrong, I've kept all the commandments. Never. And you know what I would say if they looked at me and said that? Liar, right? Especially with kids. I like to frame this question with kids. I'll say something about the fact that Jesus never sinned. If you ever sinned, I said, do you realize that Jesus had brothers and sisters? Have you ever thought something or said something you shouldn't say to your brother or sister? And you can almost see the kids like slink down in their chair, right? He says, I've done all this. And instead of saying liar, Jesus says, he didn't say I've done all. He says, from my youth, Jesus looking. You can go on. I know. I was me. And Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, Okay, that's all you got one thing. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And the disciples are a little bewildered. <laughs> Jesus, like, that was like a good dude to get on our side there. I mean, he's rich. He's young, he's powerful. You know, Judas is looking at the treasury thinking that dude could give. James and John are thinking that God can get us into places we can't get without him. He can get us meetings with people we can't get on our own. Jesus, if you're wanting to push forward your agenda, if you're wanting to get us into the places where we can be rulers, remember, James, they're asking him, the sons of thunder are asking him right before he's crucified, hey, can we sit on your right hand? It says this in in Mark 10. Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, how difficult it would be. You know, I I just have this picture that they see the guy walk away and Jesus is like lifting their chins off the ground. And he says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. They're like, what are you talking about? In fact... Jesus said again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's lots of discussion about what that means. Is there a gate that's called the eye of the needle? Could a camel have to get down on its knees to go through? Here's what I know. The next verse tells us that Jesus wants to realize that for a rich person to get to heaven, it's impossible. And if there's a way for a camel to bend down and go through a gate called the eye of the needle, that's not impossible. But you've tried to put a camel through the eye of a literal needle. David Copperfield can't do that. Amen. I never thought I'd get a David Copperfield amen, but there it is. Next verse. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? If that guy can't be saved, a rich young ruler, looked good, had wealth, had power, said he kept all the commandments, who can be saved, Jesus? And Jesus says, it's impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with him. Now here's what I want to do today. I want to give you two ways that this is misinterpreted, and then I'm going to give you four points, and we're going to do that in about five minutes. Now, by the way, I heard Alan got applause last week for saying that he was going to preach a short sermon. Can I tell you something? It was just as long as mine are. I saw it online. That's called playing to the crowd. That's what that's So I promise you we will be out of here by noon today. All right. Oh, is that not what time we're supposed to get out? Listen, I preached at noon. The L.A. mission team would not be happy with me. All right. I got in late right now. All right. Two ways. Okay, let me tell you two quick ways that people misinterpret this. First of all is to universalize Jesus' command to the rich man. Say, so see, if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to sell everything you got and you've got to follow him. Well, here's the truth. Scripture talks about these guys that follow Jesus and they still have possessions. In fact, when Jesus raises from the dead and goes and he, you know, he, he he's, he's comes back and speaks with them, remember when Peter, they're out there on their boat again? So they didn't sell their boat. They had a boat. They're still fishing. They're still doing stuff. And so one of the ways is to universalize this and say, if you want to follow Jesus, sell everything you got, live in poverty, and just move on. That's not what this passage is. The second way, though, and this is the way most of us do it, is that we minimize the passage. It's just symbolic. He's not really talking about that. He's just talking about that we've got to love Jesus more than anything else. Let me tell you four things that I see in this passage, and then we're going to to be done today. Here's the first thing is, Following Jesus demands total surrender. Total surrender. Jesus demands total surrender for us. His call to salvation demands total surrender. His call to follow him demands total surrender. And we've got to be honest with each other at this point. According to, to modern standards, Jesus let one off the hook here. I mean, if you were in seminary and you were in evangelism class and you came in and you said, listen, guys, I had this guy that was wealthy. He was a leader in town. He was a guy everybody respected and liked that he wanted to come be a part of our church. And I told him he couldn't do it unless he sold his business and left town. They go, you failed the class. That's not what you're supposed to do. You had him on the line. You reel him in, whatever it means, whatever it takes. Jesus wasn't worried about that. He wants to understand that following him, it demands total surrender. You see, salvation is never a form of external reformation. It's never just an external thing. Jesus tells him to go sell all that he has. But it's not because Jesus just wants to see external change. It's because he realizes that the heart of the man has not been changed to follow Jesus. He's proud of who he is. He's proud of what he's done. He's proud of what he has. He is secure in his wealth and his position and in his look. Instead of trusting completely in Jesus. Can I just be real honest about our country for a minute? We have become too secure in the size of our gross domestic product. In the strength of our military. And how powerful we are in the world. And what it does is it leads to a lack of dependence on God. And I say that not to our political leaders, because I don't expect from our political leaders they're trying to run a country. I say that to the people that are in the pews of the churches of America. Jesus is saying that unless there's an internal transformation where you're willing to give up absolutely everything you own, then you're not really following Jesus. Let me ask you a question. The question in this passage is not, does Jesus call you to give everything you got up to follow him? The question is, if he did, what would you say? You see, the test is not whether Jesus asked you to sell everything you got and to move. But the question is, the test is, if he did, would you do it? And if your answer is, oh, I don't don't think I could. Then you need to check your relationship with Jesus. Second thing. People that follow Jesus don't consider their options. They just obey. You've heard it said many times from this place, when I speak, when Jeff speaks, when Alan speaks, that what Jesus says in Scripture, what God says in Scripture, that if you want to show Him that you love Him, you obey Him. You just simply obey. Do you know what most of us do when it comes to obeying God? We act like teenagers to our Heavenly Father. You ever told a teenager to do something? What's their first reaction generally? Well, besides no. The explanation and reasons why and why do I need to do that? And what's the purpose of me doing that? Is it good for me to do that? Why are you asking me to do that? Or we do the <laughs> eye roll. We. How do you feel as a parent when you say, hey, can you just take the trash out? In a minute, why do I need to do that? Why, what's, what's, what? How do you feel as a parent? You feel excited about that, right? Awesome, right? How many of us, when God asks us to do something, we act like the teenager. God, is that really what you want me to do? Well, why, why would I do that? Or, Well, you know, not right now, God. Like when, when I get my life established, that'll be great. Or when I get time in my schedule, yeah, I'll be glad to do that. Jesus isn't looking for anything except A simple yes. You see, he's not a respectable teacher only. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. And when he asks us to do something, the only response that makes any sense is, absolutely yes, how quickly can I do it? Here's the third thing. We can surrender to his will because we know he loves us. He goes up to the man. I think this is the point that we often miss. It says, looking at him. So the guy says, I've done everything. I'm perfect in all the commandments. It says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him he loved him scripture teaches us again and again that the reason god asks us to do certain things is not because he is trying to kill our joy or try to make us follow a particular way it's because he radically loves us radically loves us Scripture says that He is a shepherd who protects us. The most famous uh, scripture of all, and, and or one of the most famous scriptures of all time, Psalm 23 tells us that our God is a shepherd who takes care of us, who leads us to places we need to go. Luke twelve thirty-two says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Fear not. We are people who are loved by God with an unbelievable love. He delights in us. He provides for us. He gives us good things. He desires the best for us. Even when we don't see it or understand it, God's will is best. And he wants to satisfy us not with just the things of this earth. When he tells the guy, he says, go and sell all your possessions and then you will have what? Treasures in heaven. What do you want? Short-term treasures we can't keep or long-term treasures we can't lose. What do you want? Short-term investments with unpredictable results or long-term investments with inexhaustible savings. He says to the guy, go get up all this temporary stuff. And when you get through with this temporary stuff, then come follow me. And then I will give you treasures in heaven that will never rust, that will never fade, that will never break. And they'll be yours. What do you want? You want another bigger house? Or do you want an eternal reward with the Father? Now at some point we're going to talk about the rewards that are in heaven. Last week we're in Santa Monica Church and Zach Drake preached on the rewards that we get in following Christ. And we'll do that at some point because I think that's a place we sometimes miss. But the reality is he's not telling them to give this up because he didn't want good for him. He's telling them to give it up because he wanted better for him. And here's the last thing we see in this passage, and then we're done. Love for the present can rob us of the joy which we were created. It says in the scripture that he went away disheartened, sad, because he had so much stuff. This week, we had an unbelievable opportunity while we were doing Vacation Bible School with Santa Monica Church. There was a a guy there that Zach had told me was a part of his church because... Um, for you to understand, Santa Monica Church, we were there. Um, they meet in a community center. And, and the community center they meet, it is open. They don't, they don't have a church. They meet in a community center. And it's open. Windows on every side. And, and right behind where Zach is preaching, there are basketball courts with people playing basketball. And right to the right of where you're sitting, to the left where Zach is preaching, there are, is a dog park with dogs running everywhere. I'm just going to tell you, I know you, y'all would not do well in that environment. Okay? But he said that there's a, he said, there's a guy in my congregation, he goes, he, he used to play basketball professionally, and he goes, I know he's sitting there thinking, man, I, I could go take those guys right now. Like, he said, instead of listening to my sermon, he's thinking, well, that guy should have done this on the, on the court. And so that guy was there for Vacation Bible School, and we got a picture of him, and, and y'all know the guy in the yellow shirt. That's Mike Allen, right? So this is Keith Erickson. And Keith Erickson, we had an opportunity to hear his testimony. And Keith Erickson, some of you may remember that name, some of you may not. Keith Erickson played in the 60s for UCLA. Won two national championships. He had a guy named John Wooden as his coach. I don't know if you've heard of John Wooden. Okay, He was the class that was right before Lou Alcindor. You all know Lou Alcindor, right? Who was right before another class? that was right before Bill Walton. Like that whole stretch, um, he he told um, he he loved the fact that we had some Kentucky fans there. Uh, he looked at Ellie and he said, "I know you're a Kentucky fan." He said, "Have you just a question? Do you know which school has won the most national championships in basketball in history?" And she said, "UCLA he goes." That's right. Don't forget that. All right. He was talked a little trash. He won two. And then he went to play professional basketball. He played for four teams. He played for the San Francisco Warriors. He played for the Chicago Bulls, the Phoenix Suns, and he played for the Los Angeles Lakers. In fact, he won an NBA championship with the Lakers. And on that team, he started and played a role with two guys that you may have heard of. One is named Wilt Chamberlain, and the other is Jerry West. And then after that, he became a broadcaster for the Lakers for eight years with Chick Hearn, who you may have heard of, that was the voice of the Lakers. And so he's got an amazing life. You know, just all these people he's intersecting with. He told us his testimony of how he was saved, how he went searching, how he'd been looking for all these things. And by the way, the way he was saved, the person that led him to Christ, he wanted the best fitness guy in the business. And so he went and found a guy named Jack LaLanne. Do you remember that guy? And Jack Lalane wouldn't take him, but his assistant would, and the, his assistant led Keith to Christ. Told him about Jesus, okay? Answered questions for him from the Bible. And Keith finally allowed Christ to come into his life. And here's one thing that struck me. So he told this whole story, and then he opened it up for questions And on Tuesday, and he did it again on Wednesday. I wasn't there for the Wednesday session, but on Tuesday, he opened up for questions. And somebody asked him, because, you know, Jerry West is the logo, if you know NBA basketball. He's the guy they modeled the logo after. He was one of the greatest players of all time and still an executive. He's an executive for the Golden State Warriors. He's helped build that team. And they said to him, somebody said, has Jerry West become a Christian? Because he talked about several of his teammates have become Christians. Keith looked first at us and he said, no, but Elgin Baylor has. I don't know if you know Elgin Baylor. great sinner. And then he stopped for a second. And, and, you know, you try not to interpret too much in it, but he got a little emotional. And he said, it's just really hard when you've got as much money and fame and success as he does to realize you have a need for Christ. Here's the truth, okay? We... As believers, many of us in this room see the fracturing that is happening in our country. But when you have as much success and power and good fortune that our country has had, it's hard to see your need for Christ. And let's be real honest. For most of us in this room, when you have as much security... When you have as much stuff, when you have as many blessings as we do, it's sometimes hard to see our need for Christ. The rich young ruler is not an example of some guy out there that had it all together. He is you and he is me. This story may not be as applicable to any group of Christians in the history of Christianity as it is to American Christians today. And let me just ask you a simple question. Are you following Jesus? Have you completely surrendered? And would you do whatever he asks you to do? Let's pray together.